morning. If you sat down and, and you got poked, um, there's workbooks on the chairs, and the goal of the workbooks is to in some way be useful to you to consider and think through and continue to read the text that we're talking about on Sunday throughout the week. So there's space in here to write notes from Sunday morning. Uh, there's space in here uh, to dialogue with the Lord for prayer requests or journaling. Uh, use it if you like. Use it however it could be useful to you. But the hope is that um, seven days a week we're engaging with the Lord and his word. And maybe this will be a tool to help with that. As you can see the signs, living proof of a loving God. We're starting a new series. Uh, it's not Daniel anymore. It's not stand firm, although we do see stand firm in First Peter 5. Um, living proof of a loving God written by Peter, a guy who's failed over and over and over and over, right? Peter is someone who sticks his foot in his mouth repeatedly, and we'll walk through some of those instances over the course of uh, this series, but if you're someone who occasionally has a hard time relating to God's word, you are someone who talks first and thinks later, or talks first and doesn't think at all, or maybe you married someone who's like that. People at other churches do that, so that's okay. Maybe you married someone like that. If, if that's you, uh, Peter's your guy. And, and so when you see some of these great things that Peter's going to write, I hope you're encouraged that there's hope for all of us. And so Peter is writing to a mostly uh, non-Jewish audience. They're spread out. They're living in the midst of a bunch of Roman provinces. So where his audience is, Caesar is worshipped as Lord, not Yahweh. And so their problems come from trying to follow Christ when they're surrounded by people who aren't. So they're swimming upstream, and the current of culture is going against the Lord, and that's where the tension arises. This is a pastoral letter. This is a shepherding letter to Peter to his audience, these people dispersed, these people displaced, saying, stand firm in the grace of God as the living proof of a loving God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to just jump right in this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going to start with the first two verses, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. I want us to see that God is actively leveraging all of our circumstances for our eternal good. And when you hear me say our eternal good, I want you to think of a quote by Pastor John Piper. He writes and says often that God is most glorified in us. God is most, most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So it is a great thing for us that God is concerned with his glory because it leads him to love us well. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, God is actively leveraging all of our circumstances for our eternal good. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, to those who are chosen, to God's people, he's writing to believers, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those are Roman provinces, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with blood, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with blood. Their conflict, their 
tension in life is derived from the fact that they're following Jesus and they're surrounded by people that don't. And so if you're following Jesus, if you hold to a Christian worldview, you're also going to have conflict. You're also going to have tension. If you want to work in a public office in some parts of the country, it's going to be very hard to get elected if you hold a Christian worldview. In some parts of the country, it might be very hard to work in entertainment if you hold to a Christian worldview. Some of you are educators, and you feel compelled in your classrooms, in your place of work, to be guarded, to be closed off with your world, Christian worldview because of how you might be perceived. If you want to teach science, you might find it hard in an interview if someone discovers that you're a Christian. They might say that you're uh, anti-science. How can you be a science teacher? How can you be a Christian? There's going to be a tension if we're following Jesus and we're living in a culture that doesn't. If you're raising your kids and you're trying to prioritize their spiritual development over their athletic, artistic, or academic development, your kids' coaches aren't going to understand why you don't want to spend every waking hour and every last dollar trying to make them t-ball all-stars. Your kids' friends, parents, aren't going to understand why you're going to insist on knowing where they're at, what they're doing, and who they're with. And if you try to put boundaries on technology, you're going to have tension in your own home. Your kids aren't going to be happy. Trying to follow Jesus and trying to point your kids to Jesus, you're going to have tension with those who don't. Verse 2 says, they're where they're at according to the foreknowledge of God. I probably should have spent two weeks on, on that phrase. Uh, they're where they're at according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, if you're like me, uh, that's an uncomfortable thing to consider. right? Because if I'm honest with myself, I still want to walk by sight and not by faith. And what that means is that when I can't see what God's doing, when it doesn't make sense to me, when I don't understand, I doubt that he's in control, and I doubt that he has power. Nicole doesn't know it, but I was supposed to meet her my junior year of college so that we could have about a year to date and then get engaged before graduation so that immediately after graduating, I wouldn't have to live with a bunch of guys in an apartment. I could get married and go off to some sort of happily ever after. That's not how it worked. That's how it was supposed to work. But I had to wait two or three years after school to even meet her. And then it took time because we had to date and get engaged and all those things. But when things don't work out, when I don't understand what God's doing, when I can't see it, I have a tendency to doubt that he's power. I have a tendency to doubt that he's good. There's also a sense where I understand that I have a tendency to think good of God to the degree that he's doing good for me right now. I have a tendency to think good of God to the degree that I can see him doing good for me right now. There's still a part of me that thinks it's God's job to make me happy, to do good things for me that make sense to me right now. And so I just want us to see that if our, our worldview is driven by what we see and by what we understand, difficulty is going to crush that because difficulty about what God is doing, what God sees, and what God understands. Not what we see or understand. Many of us, when, when difficulty comes, uh, our first response is to try to 
fix it and change our circumstances, right? So we tend to see difficulty as primarily a physical problem, primarily a, a men or a women problem, a humanity problem, not a, not a spiritual problem. So we look for man's solutions to man's problems rather than a spiritual solution to what is very often a spiritual problem. And, and so we, one of the ways we do that is we try to fix our circumstances, believing that if we can fix our circumstances, the problem will go away and everything will be restored. How many of you have been lost at Disneyland? Has anyone ever been lost at Disneyland or thought that you maybe lost a kid at Disneyland? Isn't it amazing that you can be at the happiest place on earth, at least if you're an eight-year-old. You can be at the happiest place on earth and be terrified, right? And so what makes it not a scary place? The moment that you see mom and dad, the moment that you realize you're not alone, you're still in a crowd of strangers. You're still surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of people that you don't know. You still don't know where you're necessarily at in the park or where you're going or how you're going to get there. But the moment that you see mom and dad changes, right? The moment that you realize you're not alone, everything changes. So one of the things that we've got to realize, one of the great truths of this text is that no matter where we're at, if we feel lost in life with terrible circumstances, we feel lost at Disneyland with a lot of good things happening around us, if we still feel lost, we're not alone. They're where they were at by the foreknowledge of God. God knew, and he's there with them. Uh, Next, we see this real cool interplay between uh, the Father, who the text says knows according to his foreknowledge. Uh, We see the Spirit active in sanctification, and then we see this kind of strange wording where the text says that it's for the purpose of obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling of blood. Now, the sprinkling of blood is admittedly a strange thing. It's not something common in in our culture, not a common practice uh, that that most of us have. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, Moses was sprinkled with blood when the covenant was given to him. So the sprinkling could be covenantal. Aaron is sprinkled with blood when he takes the priestly office. Sprinkling could be priestly. In Leviticus 14, there's this really neat text where we see the purification ritual for a person, part of the faith community, who has come down with leprosy. And what happens, you get leprosy, you're essentially outcasted, right? There's a break of fellowship with the people because you're ceremonially unclean, you're contagious. And so you're, you're outcasted out of the city. And there's also then a barrier between you and the Lord for worship, right? You're not allowed to be a part of worship celebrations. You're not allowed to be part of worship rituals. And, and so you're, you're cast out for a time. And in Leviticus 14, we see that part of the ceremonial cleansing process, once a person has been healed, is sprinkling of blood. And they're restored to community and barriers to worship are removed and they're invited back in. So I think what what Peter is saying here is that this community of faith, this thing that the Lord is doing with these dispersed people groups is making them one people, enabling them to live obedient lives and then letting them know that they're not going to be defined by their missteps. They're going to be defined by God's ongoing, continuous power of the Spirit. And we see
see how that would be meaningful in your life, to not be defined by your misstep, but be, be defined by God's power to restore. And you see how that might be useful in our community and our influence in Douglas County, County, we were not defined by our misstep, so I'm not defined by the fact that I occasionally lose my temper with the kids. I'm not defined by the fact that after 12 years of marriage, I'm still at times a selfish husband. Every once in a while, not often. But there's days where I seem to move further from the Lord, not closer to him, that I'm not defined by my imperfect love for God. I'm defined by his perfect love for me. See how that changes me. See how that can change the way that we relate to the Lord. Some of you have got huge missteps in your past. We all rank them. That's messed up, Pastor. We don't have time to talk about why it's messed up. We have to be defined by our past. We have to be defined by our misstep. We have to be defined by God's ongoing, continuing power to restore. Some of you have seen the movie uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's kind of fitting. Five kids get golden tickets. They get to go in and tour the factory. They think that this supply is touring the factory. They're very excited. Uh, what we, the watchers, know is that the actual prize is that Willy Wonka is looking for a child of pure heart of some sort who will one day take over the legacy and the chocolate factory and his fortune. And, and so the five kids come in, and you remember four of the five are just as rotten as can be, right? And each one makes some sort of misstep at some point, and what happens as soon as they misstep? One turns into a blueberry, and he's rolled out of the factory. One goes down the garbage chute, right? One misstep, and they're out. And so you've just got to see that for God's people, for people who are part of the family of faith, following Christ is not like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory where one misstep and you're out. <laughs> the Lord doesn't have a three-strikes rule for his people. Hebrews 4 tells us we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, doesn't condemn God's people for their weaknesses. What would it look like if we were able to receive that and then give it to others, especially when God has allowed difficulty in our life? Many of you right now are in seasons where God has allowed great difficulty in your life, and you can probably list the number of hurtful and unkind and thoughtless things other Christians have said to you in your season, because for whatever reason, when someone else is going through difficulty, we tend to have the sense that we know why, we know what they did to bring it upon themselves, and we know what they need to do to fix it. And, and so if, if we're going to see difficulty as primarily a spiritual opportunity, it needs a spiritual solution. So when you see someone hurting, can we, can we run to them, not from them? Can we be quick to be close and then really, really slow to diagnose? Can we help them wait on the Lord rather than helping them obsess about how they can help themselves? In difficulty, we all want answers. Why? Can we help each other go to the Lord with our questions, not fixate on trying to provide answers, right? They don't need us. They need him. Can we help people journey well in their difficulty? not be fixated. I think every marriage counselor in the history of the world has told some guy at some point, your wife doesn't need you to fix, right? She needs you to listen. Anyone ever heard that? You don't have to raise your hand. I've heard it. Your wife doesn't need you to fix. She needs you to listen. 
so often people I've heard in here who are quick to fix thinking we're the solution rather than listening and trusting that God is the solution. Let's continue with 1 Peter 1, 2, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. We see not only is God involved with their situation, not only does he allow this, he's working this for their eternal good, um, we see in verses 3 through 5 that our imperfect circumstances actually lead us to hope for God's perfect future. Verses 3, 4, and 5. 1 Peter 3, 4, and 5 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter starts by reminding them, blessed be God and Father, it is his great mercy that has caused us, according to verse 3, to be born again to a living hope. And so following Christ starts at this point where we recognize that it's not us, uh, it's God who does the work, that we're broken, right? Because of our sin, we deserve to be entangled and ensnared in sin and to not be able to get out. We deserve to live the fruit of that and to be engulfed in shame and guilt. Like we deserve, because of our sin, because of our obstinacy, because of our defiance, to long for more and never find, to search for meaning and to never get there. And Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the Lord has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. slaves to sin. In Christ, we don't have to be engulfed by sin and shame and guilt. But in Christ, we can find our meaning and find significance that is found in him. Peter says, have a undefiled, imperishable, and unfading inheritance. Revelation 21 speaks a little bit to this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 21. Uh, you can read more of it on your own time. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Uh, and just just a snapshot, a little bit of a glimpse at this unfading, imperishable, undefiled inheritance. This thing that we're waiting for, anticipating. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Look at that. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you've been to a wedding recently, what's the coolest part of the ceremony? Besides when the pastor's talking. Isn't it when, the, isn't it when she comes down the aisle or she, the doors open and... If you're watching the guy standing up here, no matter how tough he thinks he is, that's when his lips start to quiver or maybe a tear comes down. Second coolest part of the wedding, when you watch her walk down the aisle, right? You watch her walk down the aisle and some poor chap <laughs> sitting here 
speechless. He doesn't know what to do and stuff, right? Because it, it so exceeds his expectations. It, it, oh my gosh, this is this is for me. This is for us to see. Uh, it's an incredible moment. Says, "I see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband." And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Once again, no distance, right? No distance between us and God. No reason at this point for us to hide in shame from God. No reason for us to fear judgment at this point, right? Fully known, fully explained says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's just that's just a small part, right? Just a small part of what we're eagerly anticipating, our eternal treasure for those who are found in Christ. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're waiting for. Peter says, and you look around and you see things you don't like. Pause for a minute and consider your eternal, unfading, imperishable, undefiled inheritance. I suspect Peter's audience is concerned about how they're going to stay the course. You ever look around at culture and wonder, how are you going to stay the course? You ever look around and say, how are my kids going to stay the course? You ever look around and, and you just kind of want to throw up your hands? Peter doesn't just say, this great thing is coming. Now try really hard. He says, this great thing is coming, and God's power is keeping it for you. God's power is keeping you for it, and is keeping it for you. Uh, David, in Psalms 28, 7, says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. In Psalm 3, 3, he says, oh, Lord, you are a shield around me. You are the one who lifts my head. So one of the, one of the problems is that most of us think we're the sword and we're the shield. The inheritance isn't kept because of what we do. It's imperishing and unfading and undefiled because the Father keeps it that way. And he kept for it. So, so what, is it, what does it look like? What does it look like to think about this in the midst of this? What does it look like to think about our eternal inheritance if we're consumed and overwhelmed by just what's going around, going on around us at work, going on around us at home, going on around us in our neighborhood, going on around us just in our own hearts and minds? I think Psalm 7 uh, just fits. Uh, if you've read Psalm 7, the first like 16 verses are basically David whining and complaining. And saying things like, God, uh, my enemies are like lions trying to tear apart my soul. Okay, Not lions at Wildlife Safari that are behind a fence and maybe once in a while they stand up and maybe they look at you so, take a, so you can take a picture. Now David's saying, like, I feel like I'm in there with not semi-tame lions and they're trying to devour my soul is the picture that he uses to describe the torment and the difficulty and the fear that he has about what he's seeing around him. And he uses words like, God, awake, God, arise. Many of us probably this morning would say that that might be a prayer of our hearts. God, awake, 
God, arise. God, show yourself to me. God, show me what you're doing. And so there's 16 verses of that. And then verse 17 of Psalm 7, the last verse of the chapter, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In other words, I would like to handle my situation. I would like to handle my circumstances, but God, I'm, I'm going to trust you. God, I don't understand my circumstances. God, I don't understand my difficulty, but I'm going to turn to you anyway in the midst of it. God, I'm going to praise you for who you are, for who I know you to be, for who you've been in the past, even though right now I feel like blaming you. Right now I feel like pointing the finger. David says, arise, wake up. The idea is almost as if God is sleeping and David's just not yelling enough, loud enough. Some of you had this experience this morning trying to get your kids out of bed. David is yelling and can't get God to wake up. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks that is due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's continue in 1 Peter, verses 6 through 9. Uh, difficulty in this life is God's means of securing his good future for us. About as unpopular as, <laughs> as we could stumble across. Difficulty in this life is God's means of securing his good future for us. Verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, in your internal inheritance being guarded by the Father. In this you rejoice, verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Earlier we said that God knows our plight. God is with us in our plight. They're where they're at according to the foreknowledge of God. God's not shocked. God's not surprised. God's not caught off guard. They're where they're at according to the foreknowledge of God. And, and now we see that he doesn't just know, but he's active in it actively leveraging it, using it for good. How, how does that happen? I mean, some of the Lord's greatest works we do will came at his lowest point, right? Is it possible that some of the Lord's greatest work in our life is also going to come at our lowest point? Um, some of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and this thorn in the flesh. And for those of you that uh, haven't read it in a bit, Paul is given this thing that torments him, physical agony, physical pain, physical suffering, and he begs the Lord to take it from him, and the Lord doesn't. He begs the Lord, it says, three times to take it from him, and he doesn't. This is what Paul says 
about why this happened. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. So the Lord must have known that if he was going to invite Paul to be part of this incredible work, the revelations that Paul describes, that Paul was going to get puffed up and conceited and his availability for the Lord's purpose was going to crash and fall, or Paul himself would crash and fall. So Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. The Lord allows this difficulty in Paul's life to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from becoming puffed up, and to undo all the good that God intends to do in his life, for his life, and through his life. Uh, And so in verse 9, he says, I have begged the Lord. He has not taken it away, but here's what the Lord said. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Sometimes God allows difficulty to keep us dependent upon him because he knows when we're dependent on him, when we're not operating in our own strength, when we're not trying to operate by our own means. But that is ultimately for his highest glory and for our good. So sometimes difficulty keeps us dependent upon the Lord when we're prone to wander, when we're prone to think, thanks God, I've got this. Right? God keeps us from that at times by allowing difficulty. Second Corinthians 12, sorry, Second Corinthians uh, 1, 3 through 4, Paul adds uh, to this idea and, and he says that our difficulty actually then prepares us uh, to help others. Our difficulty prepares us to be more useful to the Lord. Our difficulty helps us to relate to others 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We see that sometimes our difficulty is not just for us. Sometimes our difficulty is not just for us. It's for others. Think about people that you're praying for right now. Would you consider that maybe the people that you're praying for, that that your God's answer to their prayer or your God's answer to your prayers for them and that he's preparing you to be able to comfort them in their affliction. Sometimes our difficulty is not just the work of us. Now, Regardless of what your difficulty is today, regardless of what God has allowed in your past, in your present, or maybe we're going to discover this week, I think we can all agree and say confidently that it's not fun, uh, that it's generally not to our liking. Uh, It rarely, if ever, happens in our timing. Like, life never slows down to where you can say, all right, God, you're going to do something, get it done in the next three months because it's summer vacation, the kids are out of school, sports are on break, I've got some time to really think through after this year or this month. It doesn't seem to ever work that way. Not on our terms, not in our timing, it rarely ever lasts as short as you think it ought to last. 
some of you are familiar with the story of Elisha and Naaman in 2 Kings 5. So Naaman is this really important, really powerful military general. He contracts leprosy, uh, can't do anything in his own strength to fix it, tries everything, his power, his money, his influence, doesn't fix anything. And there's a servant girl in his house who says, there's a godly man that you should go talk to. He can heal you. Naaman at this point is willing to try anything. So he gets his entourage. He gets the, the limousines and the chariots and they head off and they go see Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come to the door, but he's there. The man is uh, already uh, insulted and Elisha's servant tells him to go wash in the most disgusting, ugliest, dirtiest part of the south of Elisha. I'll go out 138. I'll go out there where it's beautiful. I'm not going down to the dirty spot. He refuses. He's insulted. The instructions are beneath him. No way is he going to do that. No way. And as he's leaving, his servant says, Master, if the man of God had asked of you some sort of great, difficult, courageous, challenging adventure, wouldn't you have done it? And you can imagine Naaman saying, Yes, that idiot doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and the servant says, why won't you go do this thing? This one thing. So what does he do? He obeys and he heals. And, and so as we think about difficulties, we can, we can dismiss the difficulty in our lives that God doesn't know what he's doing. We can dismiss it and disregard it and, and say, this makes no sense. This is beneath me. I'll find another way. Or we can obey and just wait and trust for God's healing. And, and the difficult thing is sometimes we don't get an explanation or a healing in this life. So that's just a us and God thing. So God's up here and we're down here because we don't always get that. But for many of us, it's just we need to obey and wait and trust for his healing. One of the things that uh, we did this week, some of the church staff got to be a part of an alliance conference. Uh, I shared a full disclosure. It was in Miami Beach. Very nice beach. One of the things that we were challenged with by a speaker, one of the themes uh, was to encourage, uh, to invite the Lord to do anything that he might need to do in our lives in order to do anything that he might want to do with our lives or through our lives. So I might ask you, do you, do you trust the Lord like that? Or you might even say, Lord, if you need to do some faith finding, Lord, if you need to make me more useful, Lord, if you need to keep me humble, need to keep me dependent upon you, would you do what you need to do in my life so that you can do everything that you want to do through my life? So that's not a fun thing to pray. Uh, I, I told Nicole this week, that's something that for the last couple months I've been wrestling with just in my own time with the Lord and have been unwilling <laughs> to write that down. I, I want him to do whatever he wants to do. I kind of don't want him to do whatever is necessary prepare me for that maybe. So uh, even in our doubt, even in our faithlessness, we were just reminded that there's these massively underformed aspects of our faith. So again, 
We have our great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, doesn't condemn us for our weakness. But I would encourage you to consider that prayer uh, and all of the reasons not to pray it, to, to consider those as well of, of what is in your heart that would cause you to back Last three verses, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, the good news is for all people at all times. 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, 12. The good news is for all people at all times. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things into which the angels long to look. Peter says the prophets that heard the word of the Lord and wrote it down searched and longed to understand who, what, when, where, how, why the Spirit of Christ would come and the glories would be unfolded. He says the angels who have been with God in heaven long to look into these things, long to understand the gospel, long to understand what was done for us by Jesus through the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross long to understand what does it mean to live in a community we're not defined by our missteps but we're defined by his power to restore us what does that look like what does that mean they long to look into these things and it doesn't appear that they stopped looking into them like it was continuous so it's not just useful to know that that i'm broken and that my sin separates me from god in this life and that Jesus coming as the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, living a sinless life, offering up his life on the altar of the cross for my sin, so that when I follow him by faith, the Father looks at me and pardons me based on Jesus' righteousness, chooses to see Jesus' righteousness applied to my account, not everything that is lacking in my account, but he chooses to see the righteousness of Christ applied to my account. So that is useful and necessary and what we talk about when someone makes a decision to follow Christ, but it's also useful and necessary every day in our journey with Christ. The prophets and the angels long to look into these things, searching tirelessly to understand if you're here and you've been saved for a long time, don't get tired of the gospel. Don't get tired of digging deeper into, exploring more of what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be loved by a father who has the power to continuously restore and renew, what it means to be part of a covenant family of believers, where this is how we relate to the Lord and this is how we relate to each other. He pardons us. He gives us his spirit to enable us to stay the course, and he gives us an eternal, imperishable, and saving, undefiled inheritance. Yet as we look around and say, that just doesn't add up. I, I don't even like this, and I don't even like that. living hope, our eternal treasure being kept for us by God. Uh, some of you know that, that Peter was martyred at the end of his life. Uh, you, 
Thucydides is a Christian scholar and historian that wrote around 300 AD, and he writes about uh, both Peter's death and Peter's wife's death. And, and as the story goes, Peter's wife was crucified first before Peter. They were there together, and Thucydides records that Peter's last words to his wife as he's heading to be crucified. He says, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Not I'll see you one day again, although that would have been fitting too. Not it'll all be okay, although that would have been fitting too. Remember the Lord. Let me just challenge this morning uh, with the difficulty that is part of our life because we've brought it upon ourselves, the difficulty that's part of our lives because we're swimming upstream in a current that is not following Christ. Remember the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that over and over we fail to remember you and, and that you don't fail to remember us. Thank you for not defining us by where we've been or by what we've done or what you know we're going to do even this week, Lord, but defining us individually and us together as a community by your power through the Spirit. I pray that we would be agents of your restoration in each other's life. Lord, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, that we would be comforted in our affliction. And then, Lord, send us out that we may comfort others in their affliction. Lord, as we have taken our eyes off of our eternal hope, our eternal inheritance, our eternal treasure, Lord, would you redirect our gaze to the 